Hello, I'm your host, Maya Contreras, and welcome to a new season of Obscene. This is a special holiday episode. The official new season of Obscene, season two, will start the first week of January 2020, where I'll be talking to candidates running for office, voting rights, and policy issues you should be on the lookout for at the ballot box, and so much more. Before I get into the interview today, I want to bring your attention to an article published last month by StoryBench, a news division of Northeastern University School of Journalism. It's an article I think deserves more attention and confirms a lot of underlying frustration I have expressed on Twitter and that others have also been disheartened with. I'm talking about how legacy media has handled the coverage of the 2020 election cycle thus far. Here is a paragraph from the StoryBench article entitled, How News Media Are Setting the 2020 Election Agenda, Chasing Daily Controversies, Often Bearing Policy. It's a paradox of examining political coverage. Are news media just reporting what the political candidates are talking about? Or does political journalism really set the agenda by selecting stories around specific news items, scandals, and issues du jour? Our topic analysis of 10,000-plus news articles on the 2020 Democratic candidates published between March and October in an ideological diverse range of 28 news outlets reveals that political coverage, at least this cycle, tracks the ebbs and flows of scandals, viral moments, and news items. This tendency, in turn, allows important issues such as healthcare, climate change, and reproductive rights to fall off the agenda every time a Trump-driven media cycle emerges from some new outrage or a flavor-of-the-day controversy pops up. You know, I, I agree with that. I've seen that. And so I want to say, I think this is what's been missing from the 2020 conversation. And this is why I asked to have a conversation with Shamika Gaskins, Executive Director of the Children's Defense Fund in California. I wanted to have a conversation about policy, specifically policy that some of the leading 2020 candidates have proposed around children, poverty, and their families, everything from baby bonds to universal pre-K. Each candidate has a little something to offer. After the interview was done, Julian Castro unveiled a sweeping plan to end hunger in America. And while Shamika and I didn't get to discuss it, I highly recommend reading it and researching it. I'll read just a bit of an excerpt from The Hill about his new policy. Julian Castro said, As a nation, we have a moral obligation to ensure that no one goes hungry and that everyone has the nourishment to thrive. Food is a basic human right, like oxygen and water. We need to make our federal nutrition program stronger for all Americans to reach their full potential. I believe that when the most vulnerable people succeed, our entire nation makes progress. The centerpiece of Castro's hunger plan is strengthened by the Supplemental Nutrition and Assistance Program, better known as SNAP, commonly known as food stamps, which the Trump administration has worked to curtail. Castro says he would update the formula by which the Agricultural Department calculates benefits and instead uses the low-cost food plan that will expand SNAP's benefits. He would eliminate work reporting requirements to expand accessibility to SNAP's benefits to children, working parents, seniors, veterans, people with disabilities, and people who are temporarily unemployed. Castro said that he would also like to curtail food deserts, 
or food apartheids, or places where low-income residents often lack easy access to nutritious food due to a dearth of grocery stores or other food providers. I thank you, Julian Castro, for this plan. And now for the interview. Shamika Gaskins. And what is your occupation? I'm the executive director of the Children's Defense Fund, California's office. And what is the, what are the priorities of Children's Defense Fund or the mission statement? Yeah, well, CDF um, California is the state office of the National Child Advocacy Organization founded by Marion Wright Edelman in 1973. Um, And our goal is really to advance social and economic equity by addressing institutional policies and practices that cause racial and economic disparity. And we do this by combining research, advocacy with some of our signature community-based programming, and to really work as a whole at the whole child approach of ensuring that children are lifted out of poverty, that they have access to quality health and mental health care, um, that they have quality equitable education, and they're protected from involvement in the juvenile justice system. Those are our pretty main priorities. And those are wonderful priorities to have. So I appreciate your organization very much. Um, As you know, it's a presidential election year. We'll be electing, hopefully, someone new in 2020. (laughs) um, It's really just less than a year from now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the candidates have... I just want to say that there are 18 Democratic candidates still running, and there's technically three Republican candidates running. That's right. this interview, um, I am just, um, I'm really just focusing on a few um, of the candidates who have put out policy because some candidates haven't put out policy on child care specifically or something that encompasses health care or after school. And I also wanted to focus on the people that are polling, um, that are actually existing in the polls. Um, but I included, um, Julian Castro because, um, he is somebody that people have been passionately saying should also be on the stage. And they realize that this, the way this election has gone so far, it's not working in a kind of like, it's not a, it's not really working in a fair way. Like uh, Mm -hmm. the cream doesn't always rise. Right. Mm -hmm. And he does have plans that are pretty intersectional. So I've included him in that. Um, so I, for time's sake, obviously, I have narrowed it down to Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, and I believe we will touch on as well as a, by, one of Biden's plans too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to actually start with Cory Booker. He has something that's interesting that's called a baby bond that he wants for every U.S. child. And for folks who don't know what that is, um, I'm going to quote the Washington Post here. Cory Booker's plan to fight intergenerational poverty, a cornerstone of his presidential bid, includes a novel proposal, a trust fund for every American child seeded by the federal government that could eventually provide up to $50,000 for college tuition, buying a home, or starting a business. Um, the baby bond measure is among some bold and often controversial policies, ideas animating the Democratic presidential primary, a reflection of how the candidates vying for the party's nomination 
are focused on addressing historical inequalities in American society. So that's just a little touch on that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of this baby bond for every child plan? Would it work? Well, listen, so the first time I ever heard about baby bonds, um, was a couple of years ago, a, a friend and colleague of mine that works at the Western Center on Law and Poverty here in California, Jessica Bartholo. Um, she's been in this fight for many, many years at the federal level, at the state level. And she, um, as we were working on a plan for how to end child poverty in California, kept mentioning baby bonds. And I was like, what, what are baby bonds? What is this? <laughs> what are we talking about? And so um, she introduced me to the concept that actually is really championed by um, the leading thinker is Derek Hamilton. He's at a Ohio State sort of current institute. And as, you, as the Washington Post reported, you know, it really is about trying to find ways to close the income equality gap. And when you think about, you know, what's the difference between a poor family and a rich family or, you know, or poor children and middle class children, the only answer is what? Cash, money. And we know historically that communities of color, children of color, um, through systemic oppression, that we have this inequality gap. And that really there's only a couple of ways to change that, right? We can continue to talk about, you know, working hard and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and the American dream, or we could really get real about, you know, closing that income equality gap with creative ideas. And I think, you know, the baby bond is one of those. And it's been proven to show that if you are able to, you know, put this money aside, I think, um, Cory Booker's plan or Senator Booker's plan um, is a little different than some other plans that have been sort of researched um, through the Center on Poverty and, um, and Social Policy, right. but not that different. And, you know, you would be putting in $1,000 or up to $2,000 at the birth of a child. It's racially neutral, so every baby would get it. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then, you know, and then over the course of 18 years, it would accumulate and they would have some fund, month funding, you know, close to, you said, 56, 46 to $50,000 at the end when they turn 18 to either use towards their education, which we know is exorbitantly expensive in this country, um, right. or, you know, other opportunities that they may need. Now, that said, does it, re- it won't close the racial gap completely, obviously, because, um, you know, there will still be a gap, um, the Center for poverty and um, social policy estimates that, you know, a white baby would still at the end have about seven accumulated about $79,000 worth of worth versus Mm -hmm. $57,000. So, you know, but I think, you know, it's a creative and good mechanism to really talk about how to get to equality and equity when we know in this country, we're really quite not ready for a conversation about reparations. Thank you for that explanation. I want to touch on Joe Biden's plan. Um, this is from CNBC. It says Joe Biden proposes $100 billion plan to fix horrible school infrastructure. Um, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden said that he was committed to an investment of $100 billion to improve school infrastructure across the country. Speaking at the National Education Association Forum in Houston, the former vice president said, quote, the infrastructure of our schools is horrible and emphasized that he would focus on these investments in lower-income communities. Biden said he would seek to spend another $100 billion to support teachers in lower-income neighborhoods who act as mentors to their colleagues. Biden said he hoped the investment would allow teachers to solely focus on their teaching, not on working multiple jobs. So 
What do you think about this plan? Uh, is it too broad or what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, you know, I think that the title, the infrastructure improvements, you know, is really an interesting way to describe what, which I think when you kind of read a, a little bit more clearly is talking about teacher supports in low income neighborhoods. Um, and the plan, you know, really is piecing together a couple of ideas. And one is about, you know, making sure that Title I schools through his education plan that he had unveiled before have, you know, more funding um, to provide, you know, the even out the school inequities and funding. And then you have this other infrastructure piece that sort of talks about, you know, low income neighborhood schools, having teachers who are mentoring each other, um, really sort of focusing on the teacher aspect and equalizing teacher pay is what it really sounds like to me. Um, and then in addition to that, in his other parts of his education plan, he talks about providing, you know, mental health, um, at schools and having sort of integration of services and cut psychologists. Um, and then also part of this infrastructure is his proposals around gun control so that, i.e., you're making schools safer if you're, you know, making sure that, you know, there are you know, universal background checks and bump stops and the loopholes are closed. Um, so right. I think it's a really interesting framework to say that this is about infrastructure because to me, um, you know, what we really want to see is fully funded schools. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, this is a cup getting at a couple different pieces, but, you know, one of the things that I think we can talk about this generally amongst the candidates, um, as we've talked to, as education comes up more, um, and there's specific proposals to do, you know, unique and creative things, I think, to get at, as we'll talk about a little bit more, you know, after school um, or, you know, um, universal preschool. But I think what we have to remember is that in this country, we have an underfunded public ed public education system. But right. I So, you know, and our priority over time has not been fully funding schools. And so, you know, we've it's either been military spending, you know, currently it's the border wall, you know, and so we have what we have currently in place, you know, is schools that can't provide the services that we really want them in the quality that they need for kids to thrive and be able to succeed. You know, we're still, you know, compared to Scandinavian countries, you know, at a lower outcome rate, you know, than they are in terms of what the, their, their student outcomes are. And even here in California, you know, we still have half the students that aren't at le grade level based on the California testing. So in other school and other countries are outperforming us. So I think, you know, the infrastructure piece around this, you know, in terms of, you know, creating incentives for teachers and supportive teachers is really important. But I think getting back to the baseline that we have underinvested in schools generally and that we can't forget about the quality of schools, that really needs to be a priority. I hear you. If you wouldn't mind, uh, would you please tell my listeners what a Title I school is? Yeah. So Title I schools are basically, it's basically the section of the education law that provides school funding to, um, for schools that are to even out some of the inequities. So if you're in a neighborhood school that's getting less um, because of the tax base, then the Title I funding tries to help you equal that, equalize that and gives the school more funding. Wonderful. So Julian Castro or Julian Castro, depending on your background. I'm black and Latina, so I should say it properly. Um, so I'm going to say Julian Castro. Uh, he has a, um, a plan as well um, that is 
I'm going to read from mm-hmm. pbs.org. Um, Universal Pre-K is at the center of Julian Castro's education plan. Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro unveiled an education plan that joins other 2020 candidates in calling for tuition-free higher education, universal pre-K, and raising teacher pay. The rollout follows the former Obama cabinet member's immigration plan that was more detailed than many of his rivals in the sprawling Democratic field. This time, Castro is getting behind education reforms that other candidates have also embraced, and he believes will offer his slow-building campaign a new chance to stand out. Expanding pre-K was arguably Castro's signature mark during his five years as the mayor of San Antonio, where he convinced voters to fund early education programs through part of the city's sales tax. It was not the universal pre-K that Castro is now proposing for children as young as three. Okay, so what did you think of Castro's plan, his pre-K plan overall um, as part of his education plan? I think it's uh, important. You know, one of the things that, as you mentioned, almost the majority of the candidates have a universal sort of preschool plan. They're paying, you know, they're they're creative, um, different ways about going about how they're getting there. Some are, you know, having completely universal school for three and four year olds, pre-K for four year olds. And then others are having sort of test models. Um, But we know that research has shown that it works, that, you know, zero to five kids who are under the age of five, those are the most formative um, years for brain development, for learning, for um, opportunities for social and emotional growth. Um, and that can mostly happen in the universal preschool setting. And so to be able to have the opportunity to get, you know, development and, and to integrate in some cases when they're state funded, you know, um, screenings, development of screenings to um, define um, you know, possible um, issues early on that can be addressed um, is really critical and important to children overall. And so, you know, I think one of the most exciting things about this um, this election season is that our year is that we're actually even having a conversation on the national stage about universal preschool and pre-K. So, and that many of them are actually, you know, looking to find ways to make sure that it happens. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. I mean, I will tell you here in California, our governor, Governor Newsom, um, campaigned and ran on universal preschool um, and came out with his first budget, um, estimating he would like to have 30,000 new slots of preschool, pre-K. Um, and then by the end, the budget only had 10,000 slots. And, you know, currently in California, we have about 175,000 slots for um, preschool for kids, um, particularly low-income children. And But we need... Right. 400,000 to reach all children um, in the state. So, you know, to the majority of children in the state. So, you know, I think just thinking about it at the state level, how difficult it is, and to think about how potentially you would want to expand this at the federal level, you know, it's really ambitious. Um, And I'm excited that people are really pushing um, for it because it's needed. Um, And, you know, I think it is a critical part of any sort of education plan is to think about children before they reach the doorsteps of kindergarten. Speaking of pre-K, I believe that is encompassed in Senator Warren's plan. This is from New York Times. Warren's education plan promises billions for low-income schools and desegregation. The long-awaited proposal breaks from Obama-era Democratic priorities by critiquing charter schools and testing. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts has released dozens of policy plans before tackling K-12 education, making her the last leading Democratic primary contender to do so. But the candidate who speaks frequently about her time as a public school teacher offered her long-awaited proposal, a characteristically dense white paper that promises to quadruple federal funding for schools that serve low-income students and to pump tens of billions of new dollars per year into desegregation, special education, bilingual programs, mental health support, while increasing federal oversight of racial and gender discriminations in school. The plan would be paid for by Mrs. Warren's signature wealth tax uh, on net worth over $50 million. Um, so, yeah, so let's let's discuss this. What are your thoughts um, on this kind of a bundle of policy? Yeah, I mean, I looked over it a bit. I mean, I think if you want to talk about comprehensive, I think that her plan um, tries to touch on, I think, what I was getting at before is all the things that we know are needed in schools that we currently don't fund. Um, you know, right. and she is figuring out how to pay for it through, you know, the, the taxing, you know, sort of the wealthiest and, and capping um, costs for families, you know, at a certain percentage of their income, um, particularly p- families, you know, below the poverty line. And so, um, you know, I, it, it really does try to address many of the sort of shortcomings that we currently have in our education system, particularly around, I think, um, well, I think preschool, uh, uh, preschool, universal preschool, but also, you know, the, I think she's the only candidate that has actually talked about um, desegregation and ensuring that um, there's enough funding in schools so that we have, you know, really back to sort of community schools and neighborhood schools. Thank you for that. I do want to comment on the desegregation aspect. Uh, um, Senator Kamala Harris has indeed discussed um, desegregating schools. Uh, she said on June 30th, 2019 to uh, reporters, I support busing. Listen, the schools of America are as segregated, if not more segregated today than when I was in school. We need to put in every effort, including busing, into play to desegregate the schools. Uh, Federal government has a role and responsibility to step up. So I just want to mention that or I'll be eaten alive on Twitter. Okay, so let's now. (laughs) So let's move on to Pete Buttigieg. I'm going to read an aspect of this article from CNBC. It says, Pete the Judge unveils $1 trillion plan for affordable housing and child care and says how he'd lower the cost of college. Uh, Democratic presidential contender Pete Buttigieg unveiled plans to invest more than $1 trillion in child care and affordable housing over the next decade as part of a package of proposals targeting the middle class. The South Bend, Indiana mayor also provided more details on how he would lower the cost of college, saying that he would eliminate tuition at public colleges for families earning less than 100000 and reduce costs for those earning up to 150000 Historical black colleges and universities would receive $50 billion under his administration. So he's really ratcheting up the money. It's at $1 trillion. He doesn't really discuss pre-K in this necessarily, um, but he is discussing a large package of plans. Um, what is your take on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what he was um, sort of pushing is, um, you know, sort of outside of school learning, which I think is the K through 12, like what are the after school programming potential possibilities. But then there was some um, discussion of affordable sort of universal learning, which included like infant and child care. Um, and right. I think that is important. And, and some of the and most of the some of the candidates are talking about that, too, in terms of um, sort of rolling it all in together. But, you know, his plan, you know, sort of has this sort of trifecta of housing and childcare and school learnings, uh, you know, after school, outside of school learning that I think isn't, you know, the amount of investment is important, but I think, you know, having, you know, sort of a more comprehensive piece uh, would make more sense. Um, and, you know, childcare, which many of them um, have talked about, you know, is really, you know, the really is, is the burden that's on American families currently today. You know, there's, you know, one third of the income goes to childcare across this country, you know, it's critically needed and hard to find infant care and zero to five care that's high quality and affordable. And so that's why, you know, really universal pre-K um, is important because if you think about when you have a baby, you have five years to figure out how to take care of them before they can go to school. And so, you know, having the three and four year old um, opportunities for learning through school is really important because then that takes some of the financial burden off of families earlier in the zero to five process, right? And then also in terms of the childcare aspect, being able to have affordable childcare um, from zero to three is really important too, because then, you know, families can actually have more income in their pockets, you know, they can be sort of lifted out of poverty if they're um, really struggling to make ends meet. And so having sort of having the government be able to spend and prioritize our most, most vulnerable children, you know, infants, toddlers um, is really important. And so I think um, uh, Mayor Buttigieg sort of touches on that with the, the with his plan, but there's obviously, you know, other plans that are a little bit more comprehensive in that. As you mentioned, sort of Senator Warren's um, plan talks about, um, you know, making childcare affordable and investing in childcare in a little bit more in-depth way. Right. Absolutely. Now, some people will probably get annoyed with me because I didn't really have us analyze Andrew Yang's plan. But I, the reason I did that was because when I had gone to his policy page, it was really just a few sentences. Mm -hmm. So to be fair to the, the Yang gang people, I will say that he, on his page, he says early childhood, childhood education for all. Mm -hmm. um, and then he says basically that pre-K early childhood education have been proven to get kids off to their start. And it also relieves families from having to find and pay for daycare for their children when they are three or four. Other countries are investing in it, including China. And we need to, as well, for the good of our children and our family, long-term competitiveness as a country. So he, his goal says uh, to create a pre-kindergarten public education system for all three and four-year-olds. And he says, as president, he will direct the Department of Education to work with states to create a plan for universal pre-K education and provide loan forgiveness for education majors who volunteer at places that provide pre-kindergarten. Okay. So, um, again, I think it's great to make a statement, but I will, in my own opinion, I don't think that is a policy development yet. It's more of a, a statement. So, um, 
you can comment on it if you would like, but you or you don't have to. But that's as much of the policy that he has so far for his um, education. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's important that the, that um, he supports, you know, if he were to come, become president, that he actually supports universal pre-K and that he gets that the, the benefits that it has, you know, that it has been proven to work, you know, in D.C. and New York um, have had successful results. And so um, so I think that's critical. I mean, I think, you know, the, again, it's exciting that the baseline that we're starting from is, you know, how do these plans differ how are they going to pay for them? Is it feasible versus is it supported or not? I absolutely agree. And uh, I'd like to touch on Senator Kamala Harris's um, policy proposal to help children and their families. It's called the Family Friendly School Act, um, which is a piece of policy that uh, I believe was kind of misunderstood. Um, and something that um, I particularly like about Senator Harris is that she tends to introduce pieces of policy uh, brick by brick um, instead of an, an overall arching framework of several plans um, under one tent. Um, but this plan in particular, um, I'd like to get some clarification on, especially from you. Um, so, Senator Harris introduces a bill to lengthen school day by three hours. This is from CNBC. California Senator Harris introduced a bill that would lengthen the school day to 6 p.m. to better align with working parents' schedule. The proposal, first reported by Mother Jones, calls for a three-hour extension of elementary school hours during weekdays and appoints money for the creation of summer programs and activities when school is not in session. Five-year grants of up to $5 million would go to school districts, serving a high number of low-income families to push the end of the average school day from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. in 500 schools. Uh, school days typically start at 8 a.m. Teachers and faculty, uh, the bill says, would not have to work additional hours unless they sign up for extra shifts, for which they would be compensated at the rate they get during normal school hours. Um so tell me, what do you think about this bill and why do you think it was so misunderstood? So listen, I mean, I think that, you know, this is, um, first of all, everything that is highlighted in the Family Friendly Schools Act is true. Like any working parent knows that it, you know, it's a struggle, you know, it's what, Today is the, the day, two days before Thanksgiving. Many schools sort of shut down early. Everybody's sort of figuring out, you know, do you have relatives? Is there a camp um, to cover, you know, for, um, you know, when schools are closed? And, and I think that, you know, as the plan was sort of rolled out, one of the things that was really sort of highlighted in the press was that, you know, it's the restructuring of the school day. The school day will be longer. Um, you know, what will that burden be on teachers? And I think once you sort of read the plan, you get to hear, you get to see a little bit more about the goal of how to, the, the goal that she is trying to achieve is aligning, as she says, the school day to the work day and seeking to support working families, which is a really laudable goal, right? Because we know parents are juggling, um, but and she's going to do this by sort of having these pilot programs um, where school districts with um, high low needs of low income families will pilot this design and they'll get five million dollars to do it. Um, and then additional 20 like 21st century community learning sort of funding for summer programming. But what I think is interesting is 
I didn't see that it was sort of outlining that the school day, A, had to be longer and facilitated by teachers. I think it's sort of left up to the school district. It specifically says um, that teachers are not should not be required to do these extra before or after care um, learning developments unless they want to. And then it outlines if they want to, how they have to be paid sort of, you know, in an overtime kind of fashion. Um, right. And, you know, and I think what it's really trying to get at which is what you see in um, schools that have enough funding and school districts that have enough funding is that there is subsidized before care and after care in school. And many of those school districts have, you know, programming that is curriculum based, that is driven to make sure that kids are getting to do their homework and having, you know, athletic time um, or other learnings and opportunities. And so, you know, I don't think it's um, anything outrageously new, Um, But I think, um, you know, again, that what they're what she's trying to get at here um, can be somewhat conflated when you pair it and say, you know, that it's about aligning the workday, because, as you know, many parents would prefer not to have such long work days. Right. You want to be able to be home with your kids when school gets out. Um, But that's not the the culture that we have in this country. And it's sort of not the way our economy is fueled. And so I think. Um, having the option and the flexibility and affordable options is what really is most important um, to make sure that she, that, you know, parents can, you know, have the coverage that they need, that's not burdening teachers more in doing that, um, and that we're providing sort of high quality programming for students. So as I mentioned before, CDF um, has a summer program that's specifically designed CDF Freedom Schools that um, to bring through six weeks of literacy to low-income students across the country um, that is culturally relevant, that's focused on reading, providing books um, by authors, illustrators that are um, that are of color and so that they can learn more about social movement building. And so, you know, as reading her and reading her plan, you know, it's sort of highlighting the need for these type of programs and that they can be funded through school, you know, through education funding. And I think that's sort of the creative piece around it. Again, you know, how amazing would that be if every school had all those opportunities? Um, And, you know, and again, prioritizing this is important. But again, prioritizing, making sure that our schools are quality schools and have the funding, the full funding that they need is really important, too. And so, you know, I I don't want that narrative to be missed because I think the new and creative ideas are important, but the importance of just fueling cash back into school districts so that kids can have art programming, that they can have PE, that school um, PTAs aren't raising hundreds of thousands of dollars so that those schools can have those things um, is really important and critical and not to miss. Thank you for that. I'd also like to um, briefly touch on Kamala Harris's um, child agenda. Yeah. So she actually unveiled a children's agenda um, that is, uh, outlines a number of initiatives to ensure that every child has an opportunity to, to succeed and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the key points of it are based basically some of the things that we began to touch on, which is economic stability by guaranteeing that parents have six months of paid leave, family and medical leave for right. workers nationwide, um, very much um, 
uh, akin to um, what CDF would like to see is cutting the child poverty rate by over 50% in her first term. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, really looking at how to ensure that children have access to health and mental health, um, trauma-informed care and toxic screenings across the country, you know, here in California, <clears throat> Despite having kids 97% covered through Medicaid and CHIP for mental health, they we know that we have 500,000 kids that were diagnosed with mental health needs but are not getting them just because of accessibility issues. And then a part of her agenda actually includes criminal justice reform, which talks about um, the treatment of children as adults in the criminal justice system and keeping families together, unlike um the current president's immigration policies around separation of families. Right. And um, it's really interesting. So, you know, that's um, sort of comprehensive agenda. I think, you know, as you mentioned, um, it's good to be able to see um, a focus on children and their needs um, from whether it's mental health to criminal justice reform um, to access to care. Um, and then I think the last part that I thought was creative is accountability. And so she proposes to create a Bureau of Children and Family Justice to ensure that the agenda gets done. And, you know, I think in Washington, we have a lot of different um, avenues um, to create change. And, you know, sometimes it's not more bureaucracy. But I think one of the things that I saw work really well in the Obama administration is there was a um, interagency council on um, reentry, which was really looking at how to bring the whole of government to support those who were reentering society, and and you know I brought together all the cabinet secretaries. Um, it was uh, led by Attorney General Holder, and it really gave I think um, each agency the opportunity to see themselves in a particular specific, specific issue of work, a body of work, and how they could be supportive. And so I think that's a good, you know, it would be good to have a statement in this country that children are important, that they're worthy of um, someone who's particular, a government agency specifically looking at how to make sure that, that their needs are addressed. So thank you for reviewing those. Then something else I want um, my listeners to understand better, um, and I think you've highlighted it very well. I, I think one of the main arching issues is lack of funding. Mm-hmm. And um, from from the federal level and um, and that you also said that it's it is wonderful that we're finally discussing universal pre-K pre-K as the baseline. You know, um, it's no longer an unusual thing anymore to to talk about that. But you you know, the founder of Children's Defense Fund has been talking about this for 45 years now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so in the, um, I believe we, we touched on the child, uh, the, um, the childhood comprehensive act. Um, the one that Edelman had worked very hard on. Um, are you starting to see now that people are coming back around to some of that, the ideas of that policy and what do you think the, the, the resistance was um, from having um, pre-K and, and after-school programs? Yeah, I mean, I think that you people are coming around. I think there were po- lots of pilots in different states that tried it out. You know, we had Head Start, which is also very similar. Um, and so I, I think the proven results of uh, universal pre-K is really what has 
focus people to look at it again. And I also think that like the, you know, in terms of where we are historically in, in, in our Congress, we have more um, women and women who have children who are young children. Um, and even, you know, I quite frankly, um, men, you know, our governor here in California has, you know, really prioritized children. And I don't think it's a, a mystery, the fact that he has like young children, he has a toddler and he understands, you know, how difficult it is to um, work a full-time job and raise children in this country with very little support, you know? So I think, um, I think it's a combination of a lot of those things that they're coming back. It's been the research, it's been the proven results, it's been sort of the continuous need of, of working parents and the inability to um, really have the resources that, you know, that we need. And also it keeps people from, you know, raising um, um, their income level, quite frankly, because for the five years, you know, particularly in high cost urban areas, you're spending 20 to $30,000 a year on quality childcare. And that's, you know, several wow. years over. So can you, you can think about if we were a country that provided universal pre-K, how much money that would put back into families' pockets and the ability to, to change their income levels and the trajectory of their whole family in their future. Right. So it does sound like all the candidates support universal pre-K. And I think the, I, I don't, I didn't see anyone that didn't, that didn't support it, but just maybe didn't mention it. Yeah. Same um, for me. You know, so I, I think that that part is good. So we don't have to rate them, but, <laughs> uh, but is there any plans that you that you were happy to you can name three of them if you'd like that you've you've enjoyed hearing some of these come back into the conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, I think I'll talk a little bit about I think some of that we talked about, but I also think that you know one of the other um, priorities that we have at Children's Defense Fund is ending child poverty, as you know, and. We have been, as you said, fighting for decades to, you know, reduce the child poverty rate in the across the country. You know, we've been fighting for 20 years in California to end child poverty and particularly deep child poverty as we have one of the highest rates across the country. And, you know, I one of the things that's been most exciting is many of these plans are connected to trying to get at that very issue. Right. And and we know that they are they are key components to ending child poverty. So in our child poverty plan um, that was released last year, we, we um, have about nine um, solutions that if you put them together will reduce child poverty by 57% across the country. Um, and, and that's about 5.5 million children lifting them out of poverty. And that includes um, you know, making a child tax credit fully refundable, changing child support to benefit more children, expanding child care assistance, what we're talking about in child care, um, making the child independent care tax credit refundable, increasing SNAP benefits, housing vouchers, and increasing their earned income tax credit, as well as the minimum raise to $15. And almost all of the candidates uh, have, um, as you have supported at least one or more of those potential proposals. I think almost all of them universally support raising the minimum wage to $15. And so that's been really exciting to hear that, you know, even outside of whether it's education or, um, 
or childcare or um, tax credits that they are thinking about the the pieces that need to work together to really end poverty and in this country and they may not all be stating it that way but i to me it's really exciting that the pieces are there for for many of them so that's been great and then i think you know um the baby bond question um issue is is unique and i think it's um I, I would love to see it tried at the at the federal level and encourage states to do it because again um, we, we know what's proven is actual income and as we are working to increase education outcomes for children and their fa- parents and their families um, you know that takes time you know there's an intergenerational approach to lifting families out of poverty but what we can do today is give babies a thousand dollars and we know by the time they're 18 that they would have forty eight thousand dollars and we know that we can do the same thing by raising minimum wage by increasing the earning them tax credit this is actually putting cash back into low-income families pockets so that they can you know um you know actually live and be, meet their basic necessities and and hopefully you know um be able to move up and out of poverty well i i love the answer to that because um one of the things I, my own personal frustration with this presidential cycle is I know that a lot of the candidates are bringing up exciting pieces of policy, policy plans, policy ideas. And, um, you know, we know that the media is not going to be an expert in all of these right. areas, but I would like to see the media interview more experts like yourself and ha- to have this conversation so that, um, say like, because right now Booker is not a front runner right now, but he does have good ideas. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice then is to hear the, the positive aspects of a plan and then having other candidates absorb those aspects into their plan, you know, and could give full credit to, to Booker or Castro or Kamala or Warren for doing such, um, so that is, that's very exciting to hear. Um, <clears throat> what would you like to see? I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this question. Um, what would you like to see discussed more? I know you said poverty and talking about child poverty. Mm-hmm. I find that I, I myself, as someone who grew up very poor, and I, we talked about this last time, and I lived in a storage facility for a short time with my, my family when I was a kid. Um, I find that elected officials have a very difficult time discussing poverty mm-hmm. with any kind of fluency. Yeah. Really understanding what that means. I mean, I will say that, you know, Pete Buttigieg um, just got raked over the coals by the root. I don't know if you just saw this article. Uh, I won't say the name of the article because <laughs> I'm cussing in it, but I can cuss, but, you know. Um, but basically that he said that he – I, he was trying to be the well-meaning white guy when he said this, but he said, you know, poor black people, you know, they're, they're just not around people that value education. So this is why they're not getting the kind of education that they want. That was horrifyingly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also because this is the way these issues are discussed are, are not intersectional. Mm-hmm. People don't know how to approach topics um, of poverty. So what would you like to see come out um, of this election? Well, I'll start with what I'd like to see. I mean, one of the things that we are doing right now is, um, we have a petition that we're supporting a young man, um, named Israel Glenn, um, from, from Minnesota He's 18 years old. And like you and myself, um, experienced poverty growing up and really wanted, you know, to demand change. And so he had this idea to start a petition to get 
a question on child poverty asked in the Democratic debates. It hasn't been asked in 20 years. And so um, we, he launched his petition on GoFundMe, um, and we've been pushing it out. And as of, I think, yesterday, it had about 35,000 signatures. Um, and right. he's hoping to get to 50,000. But we're running out of debates. <laughs> we're running out of debates to ask the question. And so, you know, again, as you said, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be had. It's a reckoning. It's a moral crisis in this country. Um, and instead of talking around it, like you said, we're sort of, we're going to do this piece on education and this piece on um, tax credits and changing the tax code. Um, you know, people really understand when you talk about what it means to live paycheck to paycheck. And I think as um, we've heard candidates say all the time that, you know, they want to be relatable, um, that they understand. Um, but it's only in being in community and being with folks that um, really have experienced, um, as you said, deep destitute poverty and understand what that means, that you come away with an appreciation that's more than academic, right? And it's more than just, um, you know, here's what the economists have said is like a good plan, but you feel it. You understand what it means to not be able to buy baby formula or have diapers for your kid. I mean, the fact that in this country we have to have diaper funds, like, you know, is just really deplorable. And so I think that's what I want to see. I want to see someone really take a stand about, you know, the real income and equality that continues to grow and grow and, um, and, and to talk about it at the standpoint of the people most affected. Right. Well, I love hearing that. And I, I would like you to send me, you said it was a petition. Yeah. Um, I'd love for you to send me that by email if you would, because I'd like to talk about it on Twitter. <laughs> but um, what's been... You're so incredibly knowledgeable about all of these issues. And it just, you said that I gave you a lot of stuff. I gave you nothing. You, you, all of that. You just easily knew what was up. So I love it. And I know people will be much more informed about these. It's a, it's a place for them to start. And uh, hopefully some of the, um, the couple of dozens of reporters that follow me on Twitter will, will see this as well. So I really appreciate your time um, talking to me about this. And is there any one last initiative you want us to know um, what CDF is working on right now? I know you always are working on several things, but is there something that um, you all are discussing right now? Well, I will say in California, one of the most exciting things that we've been working on um, that people should uh, hopefully pay attention to, and we hope that will be a model for the country, is really um, transforming the youth justice system. I think we sort of touched on it in the beginning about it's really been a priority <clears throat> for CDF as California, but also for the national organization to, um, you know, really dismantle the cradle to prison pipeline. And we lock up too many yeah. children in this country um, for too long. And one of the most exciting things that's happening here in, in California is we've had a lot of gains where we've reduced the number of children incarcerated. And what we're doing now here right. in L.A. County um, is really studying the possibility of moving young people out of the jurisdiction of the probation department altogether and to really view um, the lack of um, support, the lack of youth development, um, the reasons that children find themselves incarcerated 
as a public health crisis. And so we're really excited to be um, doing this work and hopefully to be laying the groundwork and precedent for the rest of the country to follow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obscene. New episodes in January 2020.